Welcome back to the middle of culture. I'm one of your co-hosts, Peter. And I'm your other co-host, Eden. Well, Eden, how have you been doing? We were kind of both talking about before we started recording how we uh, we both got a little something and are a little bit under the weather. Other than that, yeah. how have you been doing? Been busy, uh, you know, working on work stuff. Uh, but importantly, I think I mentioned last week that I had finished uh, Final Fantasy 13 and it started yes. Final Fantasy 13 dash two. Um, well, listeners, spoiler alert, I finished 13-2 in between episodes, and I'm now two of six main quests deep in Lightning Returns, Final Fantasy 13. Um, and it's just, it's a great trilogy of games. It is one of the best trilogy of games that I have ever played. Nice. And I'm going to, and here's here's the thing. It is, here's what I think is so interesting about it. Um, and is something that even a lot of the other trilogies that I can think of don't necessarily do this in the same way. But this is a thing that pretty consistently Final Fantasy has come back to, um, which I think is a wise choice and that, that it really builds a lot of inherent tension into the follow-up games. Um, and that is the second part is dealing with the fallout from the first part. No, oh, that's kind of cool. Like this is a thing. This is one of my favorite things about Final Fantasy 14. I'll talk about that first and I'll talk and I'll compare it to 13. 14, you know, has an expansion come out. You spend a few days playing through that expansion. You get your next 10 levels. It's this big sweeping story. You do a bunch of dungeons. You fight a bunch of bosses. There's a final boss. You have this great uh, confrontation. The music is swelling. It, it rules. The final boss fights have uniformly ruled in that game in all of the expansions. Uh, that's not true. The Heavensward one is mid, but that's just because you're too strong and it's too weak of a boss, so you don't even have to really try that hard. But the other ones have all been really, really good. But then, in the two years between the game expansions, you have the patches. Because every four months or so, a new patch comes out. And that has new story missions that continue, uh, often wrapping up things that had been occurring in the, uh, in the previous expansion and start building up uh, momentum for the start of a new expansion. But what that means is that in the patches, you have to deal with the ramifications of your actions. Because a lot of times you play an RPG and it goes wild and you do all sorts of crazy stuff and then it ends and you're like, you have that big moment of catharsis and then you're like, whoo, I wonder what happens after that. And you don't really ever get an answer to that. You know, mm -hmm. like Mass Effect is one continuous story through those three games. You know, For you sure. are consistently trying to fight the, the, or find, trying to hold back the specter of the Reapers until they come, and then the Reapers come, they mess everything up, but you, Commander Shepard, pull things together in the very end, and you either save sentient life, or combine it with synthetic life, or do any of your dumb three walk into the light choices in that game. But then it ends, and it's mm -hmm. over. And you don't know what happens after that. You can prognosticate what happens after that. In theory, there's a new Mass Effect game coming out, but I'll believe it when I see it, any Bioware game ever coming out again, because that 
studio has become very troubled um, in the past few years. But you don't really get any... You get the resolution that is in the game, but you don't see what happens after that. But that's not how Final Fantasy XIV works. I get to the end of Shadowbringer. Spoilers for Final Fantasy XIV. You're never going to play it this deep. You're not going to get 300 hours into Final Fantasy XIV. You get to the end of Shadowbringers. You get to the end of Shadowbringers. You fight Hades. It's this huge boss battle. And it's super cool. And then the patch ends. But then... Or then the game ends. And then the next patch starts. And it's like, hey, you just vanquished this terrible foe. What is happening in the world now that they're gone? Who, what power vacuums have developed because of your actions? And who is now stepping up to fill those power vacuums? And what are the long-term ramifications of the decisions that you made, of the choices that you made in the main game? And I think that's cool. Yeah, definitely. And Final Fantasy XIII, the trilogy of Final Fantasy XIII, the last two games are directly doing that exact same thing. Like, thirteen, you have this... It, thirteen, number one, is very linear. Like, you just go straight through, and you do the things in the order that they're set out, and then you beat a god at the end of the game, because why wouldn't you? And everything ends okay. Two of your party members get turned into crystal and save the world and the other four are all okay and your sister comes back from being crystallized as well and it ends all happy and then 13-2 starts and lightning your main character is somewhere else entirely she is in this hellish looking place that is called valhalla fighting this huge dragon man and you're like what what happened why is she here why is her a why is her armor so hot because like the 13-2 lightning outfit choice very good choice a so why is she so hot b what is going on how did she get here and you come to find out that because the goddess etro who is the main 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 god of this universe interceded to save the lives of your party from final fantasy 13 things got busted hmm and so lightning has been basically taken out of time and placed in this place Valhalla where she fights against the forces of chaos pretty much forever, hundreds of years. In this, this place where time does not exist, she has been fighting. And you play 13-2 as her sister Sarah, trying to figure out how can I solve things to get lightning back how can i save lightning from this situation she's trapped in because of the choices of what happened in the previous game and so you go through and 13 2 is much less linear it's way more um choose your own adventure style because you are jumping back and forth in the timeline because you can go from time to time period you can make choices which then change the time period you have diverging timelines and you can go to all of them all at the same time and so you're really messing up the timeline with your choices but you're just trying to like make sure everything's okay get lightning and save lightning Eventually, you go through a bunch of stuff. You fight the bad guy numerous times. Eventually, you fight the bad guy. You defeat him. And he's like, you have to kill me. And your other main character, Noel, is like, you can choose to kill him or you can choose to show him mercy. I chose to show him mercy. And then he just grabbed Noel's sword and stabbed it through his own heart. Mm. And it turns out he was keeping the effects of chaos at bay by housing it within himself. 
And so you're like, oh, well, that's not good. But then they run away from it and they get to, you know, 500 years in the future. And some of their friends who went through cryosleep are there and they're launching this new planet into the sky and everything's going great. And the happy pop song is playing and it's this beautiful rendered cutscene. And you're like, wow, they really did it. They sort of got like they they met up with lightning a few times. They sort of sussed out what was going there. But like we didn't really get resolution to that. But like. They solved it. They fixed the timeline and everything seems fine. And you're like, hell yeah, that was, that was a good game. And then Sarah's eyes flash and she drops to the ground dead. Oh dear. And that is how the game ends with Sarah dying because she fixed the timeline, which means she now has the powers of the Oracle and she has seen too much future. And when you see too much future, it kills you. So she dies, and that is how the game ends. And so she is dead as a doornail. The portals of chaos open up, and the world is destroyed. The world you were trying to save, and you thought you had saved, the happy pop song was playing, is destroyed. And the game ends with a shot of lightning turned to crystal, sitting on a crystal throne, and then it cuts to black and says, to be continued. Wow. And they weren't greenlit for a single for a sequel when they did that that's a ballsy move right i was shocked when i found out that they went through with that ending without knowing whether or not they were going to be able to make the third game or not but they did it anyway and that was incredible it was such a cool ending to a game because there are very few games that have the audacity to at the very end be like oh you thought you did the right thing fuck you no you didn't and just like (laughs) put you in the bad place like you you leave that game after feeling really accomplished and feeling like everything was all right and then you're just defeated and i can only imagine for fans of the game when it came out not knowing there was a sequel greenlit and then not getting a sequel for four years being like well that sure was a bummer ending wasn't it but you do get eventually a sequel which i'm playing right now which is also an extremely bummer game because the world is ending in 13 days, period. Wow. So you have 13 days to try to get the world's affairs in orders so that hopefully the God that has empowered you, you're lightning again. That's why it's called lightning returns. Hopefully the God that has empowered you can take the souls of those who you have saved and put them into a new world because there is no saving the world you are on right now. Because 500 years ago, when chaos was leashed, uh, was unleashed, time effectively stopped for everyone. No one aged anymore. No one died. No one was born. They were stuck in stasis for 500 years. So needless to say, no one is having a very good time. No one on this yeah, planet is like having it. a very good time at all. That sounds miserable. And so you are going around... You've been released from your crystal prison. You are going around trying to save people before the world is inexorably destroyed. And that is what this game is. It's so cool. That's pretty <laughs> it's nuts. A, it's a very cool game. Nice. Anyway, Final well, Fantasy 13. It's a cool trilogy. It's lightning top 10 protagonists of video games. She is so cool. She is so cool. I eventually got over the fact that it was Liara Tassoni's voice, and she's now Lightning's voice. Next time I play Mass Effect, I'm going to be like, damn, Lightning's here, and she's Blue Girl this time. 
<laughs> well, that's very cool. Anything else you've been checking out? Oh, the only other thing I will mention, I don't think I mentioned it last time, even though it happened before the last episode. Did I mention that we went and finally saw everything everywhere all at once? No, you did not. We went and saw that three three weeks ago or so. Um, it was, you know, we have a art house cinema that's local to us that, you know, once the the Oscars get announced, they tend to reshow, you know, movies that are up for awards at the Oscars so that you can kind of catch them if you didn't catch them the first time around. Um, so we sure. were able to go see everything everywhere all at once. That's a pretty good movie. Good. Nice. It was pretty good. Um, I think it was a lot of fun. Um, if anyone hasn't seen it and is interested, see it. It's really good. Um, I will say, I don't think it was my favorite movie of the year, but it was the one that I thought should have won of the best picture winners. But as I was thinking about the Oscars afterwards, why wasn't Nope up for anything? Because that was the best movie that came out last year. And it didn't Mm. like get a single nom for anything. You know, it seemed like, and, and I didn't see it, but it seemed like that was a movie where there was a fair amount of buzz leading up to the release. And then once it released, it just kind of vanished. Which is a shame. I think it's Jordan Peele's best movie by a country mile. It rules. It is such a good movie. It builds tension so well. Um, it's really, really interesting. And actually, I think I know why it didn't get nominated for anything in the Academy Awards, because the premise of that film is the entertainment industry spits you like chews you up and spits you out. And all you mm. can do is try to survive. So I couldn't see why the Academy wasn't like, well, let's give some nominations to the movie that talks about how bad we all are. <laughs> but yeah, they should have, because it's a very good movie. But Everything Everywhere All at Once, a lot of the same themes about like generational trauma and stuff like that, but packaged in a way that wasn't also wed to, hey, also the entertainment industry is killing all of us. So... Hmm. I, I see why they didn't maybe pick Nope, but they're lost because that movie rules. How about you? Anything you've been checking out? Not really. Um, I mean, you know, I've I been listening to some music. Um, nothing new that has come out that I can think of that really has blown me away in the last two weeks. Um you know, there's some stuff coming out in the next little bit that I'm looking forward to, but just, I don't know. I mean, it's just been a couple weeks. And I will say, I realized after we recorded last time, I forgot to mention that I did go see Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I don't want to get into a big discussion about it. There's been a lot of hand-wringing, it seems, in certain corners of the internet over that movie, but Marvel in general and I'm just going to say I had fun. I thought it was fun. Was it groundbreaking? No. Do I think Jonathan Majors is terrifying as Kang? Yes. Do I still like Paul Rudd? Yes. Would I see it again? Sure. Am I like, oh my gosh, this movie was terrible? Of course not. Did I think it was the best thing ever? No. It was fun. I had a good time. I went and saw it alone and didn't regret the experience at all. And that's about it. Nice. I have not seen it yet. I was going to maybe go see it, and then I've just been busy. I've been busy 
you know, playing Final Fantasy games. I mean, you got to have some priorities. There you go. Well, let's get to this week's topic. And um, what we are going to talk about today, after we recorded last time, uh, Eden and I kind of chatted a little bit about a couple options. And we decided to go with kind of what I'm, I'm calling sort of five fundamental albums that shaped the music we listen to and, and even potentially sort of how we listen to music. So this doesn't mean that these are our favorite albums of all time. Maybe it's not even our favorite album from an artist we're going to mention. I don't know. It's just, you know, I wanted these to be five albums that have had, again, a substantial impact on both how we listen to music, what we look for in music, but also really influential on the music we listen to. So that's what we're going to start with. We've each picked five. We may have some honorable mentions that we'll use to kind of clean up at the very end that we can briefly mention. I was going to say, I have some honorable mentions. Where do you want, do you (laughs) want to do them first or do you want to do them at the end? Um, let's go ahead and let's run that list first. And why don't you go ahead and get started? Because I need to pull mine up. Okay. My honorable mentions in no particular order. I'm just going to list them. If you are interested in getting to know me as a person and as a music listener, here is a list of albums that I think encapsulate me as a listener and uh, my taste in music really well. We've got Signals by Rush, my favorite Rush album. We've got Other Truths by Do Make Say Think, which is one of my favorite uh, post-rock albums. We've got Discovery by Daft Punk, my favorite of their uh, their wonderful electronic albums. You've got the self-titled Rage Against the Machine, because you got to put some rage on there, and the self-titled one is still the one that is emblematic for me. It's the one I listened to while mowing the lawn, uh, which was maybe not, you know, music I should have been listening to while I was mowing the lawn. F you, I won't do what you tell me over and over and over again as I mowed the lawn as my father told me to, but it is what it is. Um, Unwound's Leaves Turn Inside You, which is just a great, um, you know, post-punk, post-rock album. Um, Koyanitskatsi by Philip Glass, one of the great uh, compositions of post-classical music and, and soundtracks. And As the Roots Undo by Circle Takes the Square, which is the best screamo has ever been. Very nice. Very nice. I'm familiar with a few of those, but not most of them. That's cool. All right. So what are your honorable mentions? Here's some honorable mentions that I'm going to throw out there. Uh, Dirt, Alice in Chains. I still think to this day, Dirt is one of the most harrowing listening experiences. And I think that at a time when Nirvana and Pearl Jam were sort of dominating. Alice in Chains certainly achieved a certain degree of success, but I think Dirt is miles above anything that those other uh, contemporary bands put out. And I still love that album to this day, despite the fact that it is a difficult album to listen to. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and throw out um, Relentless Mutation by Archspire. 
uh, probably one of the fastest, most wildly technical uh, death metal albums I'd ever heard. And really sort of, um, while I had definitely listened to some technical death metal before then, this was the album that really kind of made me stand back and go, oh, holy cow, that's insane. Uh, I had to throw on the, uh, the, the honorable mention list, The Human Equation by Arion. It was the album that got me into Arion. I think that it's a great example of uh, Arjen Lucasen's kind of overblown, a little ridiculous, uh, you know, rock opera style. Uh, but I think that it is an interesting album in that despite the fact that it ultimately ends up being sort of a ridiculous sci-fi concept album, taken alone as a piece, it's an interesting journey into one man's kind of psyche. I have to throw out there the album Mirror Reaper by Bell Witch. We could also say the song Mirror Reaper by Bell Witch. It is a single song on an album that is 83 minutes long. It is Funeral Doom done the best Funeral Doom has ever been done, in my opinion. And I love me some Funeral Doom. But Mirror Reaper by Bellwitch was really the one that kind of made me go, okay, this is ponderous, heavy, cathartic in a way that uh, I don't know that any other music has really pushed me in the way that Funeral Doom does. And for that reason, I love it. I'm going to go ahead and also throw out, kind of hearkening back to the technical death metal stuff, I'm going to throw out the album Symbolic by the band Death. Uh, Death had some, well, every Death album is a good album. They're often considered really one of the godfathers of death metal. And uh, Chuck Schuldiner, the guitarist, vocalist, songwriter, principal guy for the band, tragically died in the early 2000s from brain cancer. But uh, in his time in the band Death, they put out some of the most formative, uh, both death metal albums and kind of their first three, and then their last four albums, uh, really started to push the boundaries of kind of technical death metal and progressive tech method, tech death metal, uh, again, back in kind of the early nineties. So, uh, really ahead of their time. Another one that I got to throw out there really quick is, uh, and I'm going to go with the album, nothing by Mashuga. Hell yeah. Even though I think that, um, I might think that destroy a race improve is a better album overall. Nothing was the first time I'd heard Mashuga, and that was the album that really kind of made me go, okay, this is a different kind of music than I'm used to listening to. And uh, I still love that album to this day. And I think I'm going to stop there and focus then on the top five that are soon to come. All right. Who wants to go first? You or me? Um, Well, I can go first since I did my honorable mentions first. Perfect. I love it. Um, once again, these are not in any particular order either. Um, they're just, they, they exist as they are. Um, and do we want to num- trade off one album at a piece? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking we'll do. Perfect. But I'm just yeah. saying the, this first one I say is neither fifth on my list nor first on my list. It is just <laughs> on the list. And, and see, just so that you know, you know, I am going to cheat by doing mine in chronological release order, starting with the oldest album and moving to the most recent. So that was how I decided to organize them to avoid any such, uh, assignation of import to the order. Oh, damn. Which they I'm going to, I'm going to do the same thing then. <laughs> All right. Very good. Done. Very good. <laughs> Done. 
then the first one for me is the 1991 album The Low End Theory by a tribe called Quest. This is, for all intents and purposes, a perfect hip-hop album. Okay. It is so good. It is... I really like A Tribe Called Quest. Um, I think that they are one of the great... the greatest bands in the history of hip-hop. The things that they could do as a group and the way that the focus is so completely on what the lyricists can do over just some nice bass because... That is basically what the low-end theory is. The entire music section is a guy on a bass guitar and a DJ. And other than that, it is just rhymes. And so it is all about what the lyricists can do. You know, it is... Tribe Called Quest has an amazing list of lyricists. You've got Fife Dog. You've got Q-Tip. You've got Busta Rhymes. You've got Charlie Brown. you got Diamond D. you got Dinko D. you got Lord Jamar, and you got Sadat X. All of them doing vocals on this album, trading off mid-song, or, or you know, taking entire songs by themselves. Um, it's just a really great album. Um, it deals with a lot of, like, socially conscious topics in its lyrics it has minimal it's a great album if someone's like well i'm kind of interested in hip-hop but i don't really like you know dirty words guess what there's very minimal use of explicit lyrics uh on this album there's not a whole lot of profanity um it just has great flow um great styles it's just it's a very good album one the one hip-hop album that will appear on my list that's what i'll say nice very good well so for my first album i'm gonna go back a few years before that i'm gonna go back to 1981 and i wonder if i say 1981 do you know what album i'm gonna say i mean yeah okay very good i figured you did and that album is one that we have discussed previously and it is the album moving pictures by the band rush um Moving Pictures is not my favorite Rush album. I think we discussed that previously. At the same time, I do not listen to Rush really regularly anymore. Sure. However, so much of what I listen to now has been influenced by Rush. Both, I think the bands themselves in many ways have been influenced by Rush because Rush, hugely influential in in rock and and metal in general, but you know, I mean, you find so many people, it doesn't matter whatever instrument you play. If you're a drummer, you like Neil Peart. If you're a bassist, you either like, or you respect the hell out of Getty Lee. And if you're a guitarist, Alex Lifeson, severely underrated. And most guitarists know how good he was. And so while they've influenced much of the music I listen to, I think that's one thing I got to give in their favor. But the other thing I have to, to, to kind of give in their favor is the fact that, again, for so many years, progressive rock and progressive metal really was kind of my first go-to. You know, if, that, if you told me, oh, this is a progressive band, I was going to at least check it out. And that so much in part due to Rush and their really introducing me back in the late 80s and the early 90s when I started listening to them in earnest – to progressive music and you know moving pictures is such a good album 
And again, I think we kind of talked about it on our, on our rush, uh, album draft or, or rather bracket. You know, I think we kind of both agree that it's pretty much a perfect album as well. I mean, it really is there. There are just no flaws. It is, it is still incredibly engaging to listen to. It is the, the, the music, uh, the performances, the way they bring together these things. And again, one of Russia's greatest strengths and sort of in contrast to a band that while influential to my taste did not make this list. And that band would be dream theater. Rush does such a good job of changing their songs, maybe moving through different time signatures, sections, having variety in the song, but making it flow, making those transitions feel natural. They're not jarring. And again, not all bands can pull that off, especially not all progressive bands. They get so noodly and, and, and so kind of just wanky that all of a sudden you're like, wait, where did that come from? I mean, that's cool, but that doesn't make any sense with what was happening two bars ago, you know? Uh-huh. And so again, you know, with everything I listen to rock metal, uh, rush has had a huge influence on that. And I, I gotta, I gotta put moving pictures on the list with good reason. It's one of the all time greats, you know, go listen to the rush bracket album or bracket episode. If you want to know why we think that album rules so much. Yep. Even though it's, all again, right. it's not the top album. It's not our favorite rush album for either of us. No, Signals is my favorite, which is why it made my honorable mentions list. But yeah. All right. Uh, my second one is the album Yankee UXO by Godspeed You Black Emperor. This is from 2002. Um, and it is one of my all time favorite albums I've ever listened to. Um, for a long time, it was the last Godspeed You Black Emperor. It was like the benediction to a, a career of three wild uh, EP or LPs, and then it was just over, and you were done, and there was no more Godspeed You Black Emperor for a very long time. Um, but it's, you know, trippy. It deals with a lot of, uh, you know, really dissonant sounds while blending them all together in ways that make it really sing. Uh, they were not, this was not the first Godspeed You Black Emperor album I ever heard. That was Lift Your Skinny Fist Like Antennas to Heaven. Um, but Yankee UXO quickly became my favorite, uh, my favorite of their albums. And I think that's really interesting because it is their most critically divisive album. Like, Okay. A lot of people who even like Godspeed You Blank Kemper, when it comes to Yankee UXO, you either love it or you hate it. There is no middle ground. You're either like, this is the best that this band has ever been, or what were they even doing here? Um, but I really like what they did with that album. I think a lot of it comes down to the way that the sound works. It was the one album that they did with Steve Albini, um, and while this is not the type of thing you usually think of Steve Albini producing, uh, or I guess recording, he doesn't do the producing. That's the important thing. He sort of produces, but not really he lets the music speak for itself. That's what makes Steve Albini such an interesting producer. Um, but you know, it's, 
it's just really a mess of an album. And I really like how raw it is and how angry it is in comparison to their earlier work. Um, and it just has a lot of verve to it. And I really love Godspeed You Black Emperor. They're one of my all-time favorite bands. And this is, I think, their their peak. Um, you know, they've had albums before it and albums since that are all very good, but none of them quite hit as hard as Yankee UXO does. Nice. They're one of those bands that I have often thought, I need to check them out. And then I forget about it. So I haven't. Well, I'll tell you, if you want to check them out, don't start with Yankee UXO. Start with their <laughs> very start with their very first album. Start with um, uh, F Sharp, A Sharp, Infinity. Their very first album um, is a very good place to start. Um, it gives you a great... Uh, insight into who the band is going to be you know it starts uh, one of the big things that they do is they have they will often have um spoken word things that aren't done they're clearly recorded somewhere else and 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 are just put into the uh put into the music um you know not not unlike what you'll hear in a lot of you know metal records you know through silver and blood has the famous ones with the preacher speaking in it it's that sort of stuff um but it starts with one that is one of the most i think iconic uh things that you'll ever hear and it's just the dead flag blues just starts and let me see if i can find it it's it's worth reading just to give you an idea of what this band is and what they're doing so it says the car is on fire and there's no driver at the wheel and the sewers are all muddied with a thousand lonely suicides and a dark wind blows the government is corrupt and we're on so many drugs with the radio on and the curtains drawn we're trapped in the belly of this horrible machine and the machine is bleeding to death the sun has fallen down and the billboards are all leering and the flags are all dead at the top of their poles and it goes on like that. It's that sort of stuff done in this like clearly tuned down, like like pitch lowered voice over this like haunting music. It's really great. Nice. Very cool. Well, for my All second. Right, what's album, your number two? I'm going to jump ahead to 1990. Okay. So look, the late 80s were sort of a dark time for metal music, at least in retrospect. The glut of glam metal bands that seemed to dominate the airwaves of the late 80s were, well, honestly, they were kind of shit. They just had vacuous lyrics, cheesy costumes, gimmicks that abounded, and, and they were garbage. There were bands like Iron Maiden who was, you know, alive and kicking, and, and thrash metal was kind of in the underground. You know, we were developing and, and kind of getting some of the bands that were going to be the biggest names in thrash metal and many of which are still very active today. In the midst of all of this, you know, I had friends who were playing albums like Dr. Feelgood from Motley Crue, which is just garbage and Motley Crue's garbage and whatever, Yuck. I don't care. I had a friend who lent me a CD and I went home and I popped it in and I think my mind was kind of blown. And that CD was Persistence of Time by the band Anthrax. Hell yeah. So, you know, look, a lot of people say that their 1987 album among among the living is their best album. I think that it is a fantastic album, but persistence of time was an anthrax who 
they had an axe to grind. They seemed a little disillusioned with America in the late eighties and the close of the Reagan era and everything for good cause. And they came out of this and said, we're going to write an album that compared to their peers, at least was fairly mature and dealt with some, some heavier lyrical things like racism, social injustice, and, and a lot of songs really of them just kind of, uh, sort of, you know, lashing out against the conspicuous consumption of the eighties and just, just kind of the, the ridiculousness of that era and really seemed, whereas a lot of their earlier albums were kind of humorous, a little tongue in cheek. They had a sense of humor on persistence of time. You had the feeling that this was a band who they didn't want to be lumped in with that other garbage. And look, some of the lyrics are a little ham fisted in going back and looking at it. But as a 14 year old hearing a band seeing, you know, this metal band speaking out against racism and speaking out against social injustice and classism and things like that, that was pretty damn cool. And so I fell in love with this album. I really like Anthrax. I've seen them a few times. They're not my favorite thrash band, but I do like them an awful lot. In preparation for this, I went back and I listened to Persistence of Time again. And I tell you what, it freaking holds up. It is an excellent album, start to finish. There's not a single track on there I would get rid of. It is awesome. And thrash metal really being one of my favorite subgenres of metal now, I think it owes in large part to this album. I think that, you know, obviously the black album by Metallica was bigger, but it is nowhere near as good as this album. I think that rust in peace by Megadeth might actually be a better album, nah. but it isn't anywhere near as influential to me as persistence of time by anthrax. And this album still fucking rules. Nice. Yeah, I really like Persistence of Time. If I was going to listen to an Anthrax album, that's the one I would listen to. It is so good. It is so good. Yeah, it's really All right, good. well, what do you have for number three? All right, number three, um, just hopping forward one year to 2003, is the final album by instrumental music group. I don't know how to... They are described as a chamber music group on their Wikipedia page. Uh, Rachel's, their final album, Systems Slash Layers. Um, mm. I heard this album for the first time. I heard the song specifically Water from the Same Source for the first time on college radio when I was driving around in 2005. And I was immediately immediately enthralled by that song and I was like hot damn I gotta I gotta hunt this group down so I called the radio station and I said what is the name of the song you just played what album and artist and so they told me all that and I was in the car already so I just drove straight to Grey Whale in downtown Salt Lake City oh, and yeah, bought Gray Systems Whale. Layers and it is a a perfect album it is one of those albums that i could listen to literally any day um it is uh 
touching and haunting and intimate and uncomfortable and it's just a it's very messy but also very um very emotive and i just really 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 love this album i think that it is one of the greatest albums that i've ever heard um I will never not be sad about the fact that this was the last album that Rachel's gave us because they are one of my all-time favorite groups. Um, nice. And this was their very last thing, and they went out with a fucking bang. It's such a good album. Um, you know, it is just just beautiful. Just, just hauntingly beautiful music to have playing in your life. Excellent. Very good. What about so you, my number three? album... We're going to move forward a couple years. Well, we're going to move forward 11 years to 2001. And it, so in 2000 and, and, and I didn't, I picked up on this a little late when a special edition was released in 2002. And there was a whole lot of buzz uh, on the internet about this album. And people were just going crazy about it. And I decided I needed to check it out. And that album was Blackwater Park by the band Opeth. One of the reasons this album is so important to me and to what I listen to is I can clearly look at my music listening and say there's before Blackwater Park, could not handle harsh vocals. After Blackwater Park, I'm totally down with them. And so Blackwater Park was the album that really introduced me to heavier music with those harsh vocals in particular things like death metal growls and, and that kind of stuff. And the reason I think that Blackwater Park was able to get me there is because it is such a masterful album of contrasts. You have the heaviness and the brutality of death metal married with progressive tendencies and then placed right up against beautiful acoustic metal with clean vocals that are great to listen to that if you didn't know, you'd have a hard time believing that the growls and the cleans were for the most part by the same person. And I say for the most part, because on this album, Steve Wilson from Porcupine Tree does contribute some vocals, but most of the clean vocals are Michael Ackerfeld. And it was, it's a long album, you know, it's over an hour. It's getting up close to 70 minutes. There are some really long songs, a number of songs on the album break that 10 minute mark, but it then ends with what is one of my favorite songs of all time. And that is the title track Blackwater Park. That is such a, a powerful, just heavy, brutal, but still gives you those moments to kind of breathe and relax a little bit before it just chucks you right off the edge of the cliff. And again, I listen to a lot of music with harsh vocals now and a lot of death metal, some black metal, uh, you know, just a, a lot of stuff that's got these vocals that it, again, I could not listen to. I, I, whether it was a could not, I chose not to, I did not ever try and engage with it before Blackwater Park. And again, after I really listened to Blackwater Park and went on that journey to listen to it, to understand the nuance and appreciate something that a lot of people still, I know have a hard time with, but that, but the texture that those harsh vocals adds to the music. I, I, it, I, it truly changed the way I listen to music. And so, yeah, man, Blackwater Park, I again, went back and listened to it 
don't listen to a lot of Opeth lately because I don't like their newer stuff that much. I, I totally respect the band for going in a 70s kind of prog rocky direction, whatever. That's cool. It's not my jam. But going back and listening to Blackwater Park again in anticipation of this, yeah, I was I was blown away. Just reminded again how good of an album it is. And on top of that, how wonderfully produced this album is by Steve Wilson. Again, I think that's one of the things that makes it so approachable is it has this really warm sound and it's very full and again, lush when it needs to be and spare when it needs to be. Uh, and, and it's just, wow, great band, great album, and uh, definitely impacted hugely the way I listen to music. Yeah, man, I, I'm in the same boat with you. I do not listen to Opeth anymore. Um, I don't really like their newer stuff, but I remember listening to Blackwater Park for the first time and just being like, damn. Yeah. All right. Uh, my number four, hop forward to 2007. Ooh, I know what this is. I know what this we, is. It is the same album. We picked the same album, didn't we? We, we did because as you noticed by my jump up to 2001 with Blackwater Park, yeah, Number when you four, skip 96, that's... I was like, God damn, he's doing Given to the Rising. <laughs> you better believe I am. <laughs> he was supposed to pick through Silver and Blood so I could pick Given to the Rising. But no, well, dear listener, both of us picked Neurosis's 2007 album, Given to the Rising. Yes, we freaking did. It's just eh, monumental. It was the first Neurosis album I ever heard, which is why it ended up on this. Again, I can I, the case can easily be made that Through Silver and Blood is their best album. I'll claps, claps for you for making that case. Do you know which one I'm going to listen to if you say pick a Neurosis album? It's given to the rising, baby. It's given to the rising yeah. because it was the first one I heard and so it imprinted on my brain as this is Neurosis and it's still there. Oh, and look, Steve Albini rep- did this one too babies steve yes, albini you're a, you're the hell of a producer slash master slash recorder it's a great album it rules why did you pick it well so you know and i had a hard time with this because for me through silver and blood is my favorite and i think if i were to look at perhaps the influence of of neurosis on other bands, it peaked with their nineties stuff. And that shift from the post that kind of the post punk hardcore stuff on their first album. And then, you know, a little bit more on their second and then boom, we got, you know, souls at zero. And this was, this was a total shift in, in the game. However, it's for the same reason that you picked it. I had heard all about neurosis, ISIS, the band cult of Luna, but the long songs, the longer albums, the big buildups, it was intimidating. And the thought of going back and, and checking out these older albums, I don't know. I just, I, I didn't do it. And then 2007 came and Neurosis dropped Given to the Rising. And I thought, now's when I need to find out what the hell is going on with this band. And so I, you know, I listened to it. And that first track, the title track, comes out of the gate and just explodes in your face. It is meaty. It is heavy. It kicks you upside the head in a way that makes you stand up and pay attention, but only after you picked yourself up off the floor. 
And like so many Neurosis songs, and one of the things that makes Neurosis so, so good is their ability to play with dynamics. This song builds, it ebbs, it flows, it crescendos, it decrescendos, and then it stops. And it settles into this weird kind of pulsating, buzzing noise and, and kind of keyboards come in and it starts building and it is super uncomfortable and it goes on longer than you think it should on purpose because then all of a sudden 300 style boot to the chest. This is Sparta. This is neurosis and it explodes and you get kicked off the cliff and holy shit that blew my mind. It's so good. It's such it a good album. So good. It yeah, yes, like it you is. said, that it just starts so strong. The title track is so strong and just kicks off the record in such a way that it captivated me and I couldn't stop listening. And that remains true to this day. This is 100%. still the one I listened to. It's so it, it it's just so electric to me. Yeah. No, I mean, this, you know, we think about, we're talking about albums that have influenced our music listening. And so obviously there've been, you know, these albums have all had moments where they, they changed how we thought about things in, in enough of a way that they made the list given to the rising was, I mean, this was a seismic shift. This was a complete change in my musical landscape and a way for me to go, Oh, I did not understand what heavy was until really I discovered neurosis and, and again, by extension started listening to the older albums from ISIS, the band and, and cult of Luna and just it, it post metal was one of those revelations for me where, you know, I loved progressive metal because of the way it changed things up and the way it kept things interesting and, and complex and, Post-Metal said, what if we can be even more dynamic, but not have the wanky stuff in it Yep, and really just like take you on a journey. And that is what Neurosis does over the course of this album. And it is another long one and it is worth every single minute. There is not a second of this album that I would cut because doing so would at least in some small way diminish the impact of given to the rising it's yeah it's very good um i you know I, it was the same thing for me this was the album that got me out of progressive metal and into the wider world of listening to other metal genres and i will forever be grateful for it, to it for that like in 2023 guess what i don't listen to progressive metal anymore I haven't in a decade. Sure. I don't, I just don't listen to that crap anymore. I don't like it. I don't, there are like bright shining, you know, moments when it pops into my brain. Like I f was listening to cynic the other day and I was like, man, I used to listen to a lot of music like this, but none of it's as good as cynic. So I guess I'll just listen to listen to traced in <laughs> air for a couple of times and then not touch progressive metal again for a decade. But <laughs> I'll still listen to post metal and like sludge and do and like drone metal. I still love that shit. It's great. Um, yeah. And given to the rising is still for me, just the high watermark of, of my experience with them as a band. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, the neurosis is hands down my favorite band of all time. Absolutely. With good reason. 
And and this band, I mean, this song right here, that that was a game changer. I mean, I look at some of, again, let me tell you, my top five bands right now probably are, well, okay, at least three of them. We've got Neurosis and we've got Cult of Luna and we've got Yob. And all three of those bands Damn. I'm into, I discovered, I listened to, and I desperately love because of Given to the Rising. Damn, Yob. Now there's a band I haven't thought about in a year or two. Those guys rule. Oh my gosh. I saw them live last year. I'm going to go see them live again in May when they're out here. And they put on a show. I mean, golly, so good. So good. I bet. I remember, I'm trying to remember what the first album of theirs I ever heard. Um, It was Clearing the Path to Ascend. Which like makes sense. It was the one that was released by Neurosis's, uh, you know, yep. label Neuro- recordings. It's so good. That album just kicks butt. It's so good. Yeah, no, it does. For me, it was the great cessation because that was the album after they reunited. So they, they did what one, two, three, four albums up to the Unreal Never Lived, and then kind of broke up, took a little break, and then came back with uh, the great cessation. And so that was really the one that, that snagged me, but man, they're great. They, the only reason Yob is not on this list is because they weren't as influential because neurosis had already influenced me in the way that I think Yob would have. And I'm sure that's true that or maybe not. You still have one more album to go. Cult of Luna for me is in that same, uh, that same yep. category of like neurosis being on my list covers cult of Luna as well. I mean, it covers Cult of Luna, again, Isis, the band, it covers Yob. Uh, for me, honestly, I think it covers Russian Circles. Um, yeah, that's true too. Y- I you know, I would um, not have gotten into those post-metal bands if I hadn't listened to Give Them to the Rising. Yeah, for sure. So again, some of my absolute favorite bands, I, I would say over half of my top 10 favorite bands of all time, I got into because of Given to the Rising. How can it not be on this list? And again... I prefer, I think through silver and blood, I like it more, but because given to the rising was the one that got me and pulled me in, it needs to be here. Plus it is by saying I like through silver and blood more. That is not by any stretch, uh, a, a denigration of given to the rising because given to the rising is fantastic. No, it's just, it, it speaks to how great through silver and blood is. That's all it does. Oh yeah, definitely. All right. What's All right. your number one? What's your last my album? Final, my final album uh, is a really recent one. And anyone who's listened to this show could probably guess which one it was. <laughs> I think I know where this is going. D- could it possibly be the 2021 studio album Promises by Pharaoh Sanders, Floating Points, and the London Symphony Orchestra? An album that I <laughs> bring up every two to three episodes of this freaking podcast because it's the greatest <laughs> it piece be. of music I've ever listened to and still makes me cry if I listen to it in the right mood. Yes, that's the one. Promises. Listen to the whole podcast and you'll hear me talk about it on the reg. It is... <laughs> incredible it is incredible one piece of music nine movements 46 minutes of the single best jazz music and classical music 
fused together that you could ever hear in your life. The last work that Pharaoh Sanders, one of the greatest saxophonists to ever live, his very last work, um, it's incredible. It is minimalist. It is, uh, you know, moving. It, it, it has a motif that carries through the entire thing until it fades out in the eighth movement and then comes back in the ninth. Oh, it's so good. So good. Anyway, I love it. It's, I think it's maybe the greatest album I've ever heard. So of course it's here. Very good. Very good. What's your last one? So my final, I had a, I had a hard time trying to decide and I am going to openly admit that there may be some recent events that have and or are influencing this album's inclusion. But I think it would have been on here regardless. And that is the 2012 release, the debut album from Australia's Nea Bliviscaris, and that album is Portal of Eye. There was a lot of buzz going on about this back in 2012 and I checked it out and it was again, one of those important shifts in how I appreciated music. So I just like everybody else and their uncle had heard at least tracks off the Metallica double live album S and M. And while I appreciate what Metallica was doing at the time. I think you go back and listen to it now and the symphony adds some fullness to the songs, but it isn't integral in any way, shape or form. And and of course it's not, the songs weren't written with the symphony in mind, but, and while not a symphony at all, the lead singer, Tim Charles, who's the clean vocalist, he plays the violin and he plays it all over the place. I mean, it is, it is not an afterthought. These songs are written with his violin as a key person, a key member, a key part of the band, just as important as the electric guitars and often acting as, as a counterpoint to those electric guitars. And so this is where I think I truly appreciated that the integration of non-traditional metal instruments not only could be cool, but that it could be transcendental. The song Forget Not off this album remains to this day one of my very favorite songs of all time. It is absolutely beautiful. And the violin and some classical sound, you know, acoustic guitar stuff, and then just the way this song builds and and, and changes and really progresses from start to finish. I get chills. I get goosebumps every time I listen to it. If I'm feeling particularly tired, there's a good chance I'm going to tear up when that song hits. And as a band, again, I love what Neo Bliviscaris does and have really started to appreciate other bands that bring in symphonic elements. And again, a lot of these are doing much more than what, what Neo does with, with just the violin. But, you know, bands like Septic Flesh, Flesh God Apocalypse, these bands that really integrate the symphony into their music. It's not an afterthought. It's not an add-on. It is integral to the music. I really began to appreciate those in large part because of the violin use 
and and just the incredibly beautiful way they incorporate these different styles of music into this whole, into this package that I just find incredibly evocative and incredibly emotional. And, and again, am I super excited that I got to hear their new album that was coming out with the band a few weeks ago? Yes. Am I excited that I'm probably going to join a zoom release party with the band this Saturday? Yes. Could that be influencing this? Sure. But even if all that wasn't happening, this album drastically, uh, well, maybe not drastically, but, but importantly changed how I thought about certain aspects of heavy music. And so it had to be on the list. It might be time for me to check Neil Bliviscaris out. They're great. And you talk about them a lot and I just have not ever taken the, um, taken the plunge and maybe I should, you know, here's what I'd say. I would say listen to Forget Not off Portal of Eye and see okay. what you think. And if you listen to that song and you go, eh, I don't know that that's doing it for me. Cool. Great. They're not your jam. And that's totally cool. But if you listen to that and you go, ooh, I like what they're doing there. They're definitely worth checking out. And again, you know, I just, I love what they do. I love their sound. And I think that, I think that this is still probably their strongest album, but uh, it, it, again, it really, it shaped a lot of the ways I listen to music these days. And so I felt like it needed to be on here. Nice. Well, I have to admit there were no real big surprises on your list and probably that's (laughs) true for me as well. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Tribe Called Quest was a bit of a surprise. But a little bit, but know. you know, we talk about music know. enough together that, uh, that I think I had a, a feel of at least what was going to be on there to some degree. And, and again, you know, I, the way I put it is there's, um, there's not a lot of breadth to the music that I listen to, but I'd like to think that there's a lot of depth. There certainly metal, is. I'll listen to almost all of it. Um, but you know, I mostly kind of stay in, in the metal arena though. I do, I, I do like some other stuff, but You know, I think these are all uh, on both sides, important albums, both for us as listeners. And I think probably in at least some way for, for a number of the bands, uh, these, these were important albums for them. And I think that you can see that because again, this is me making some assumptions and, and maybe projecting a bit, but I think all of these albums that we're talking about were albums where the artists put so much of themselves into it. And that comes yep. through when you listen to it as a listener and it makes it more powerful and more impactful. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, that's one of the things I look for in music. I want music where I can tell the artist was incredibly invested in what they were producing because I, as a listener will thereby be so much more invested in, in what they produce. I agree. All right. Well, anything else before we wrap up or? No, that was a fun exercise. I'm glad that we did it. It was fun to just sit down and be like, what are the albums that when I think about them are like, oh, this changed the way I thought about music. Yeah, it was good for me too. So, all right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up now. We again, appreciate everybody listening. Uh, If you haven't subscribed, Please subscribe if you feel so inclined. We'd love some reviews on uh, iTunes or your podcast player of choice. 
And if you want to leave a review and, and drop that for us, uh, we'd love that too. We're always willing to uh, receive feedback. The email address is open, feedback at themiddleofculture.com. And until next time, thanks again for listening. Yeah, talk to you later. Later.